We have a smaller sized text before us today, and we'll be working through only these first six verses of James chapter 5. Many believe James is now beginning his conclusion of the book, recapping a number of themes that we've already touched on. So to borrow a baseball analogy, it's almost as if we're rounding third and home base is in our sights and we're heading home. At its core, James continues to peel back layer after layer in an effort to describe for us the nature of true, genuine, authentic religion. James is unmistakable that true religion looks a certain way. To say it differently, true religion isn't something that we just do on the inside or that we just feel from time to time. True religion is discernible. You can see it. You know it when you see it. It always expresses itself in life-transforming sorts of ways. For example, true, authentic, genuine religion has a fundamentally different approach to how we think about trials. Believers are called to consider painful, difficult, heart-wrenching trials as a joyful thing because of the effect it will have upon their spiritual fortitude, their strength. True religion has a fundamentally different approach to our communication, as we've seen in past weeks. Believers are called to bridle their tongues by means of God's grace, even though our tongues have an unbelievable amount of destructive power. True religion has a fundamentally different approach to how we treat one another. Believers are called to resist showing favoritism to the wealthy or the influential among us while deliberately uh, turning our nose on those of lesser status, particularly orphans and widows. True religion has a fundamentally different approach to how we relate as believers to the world around us. Believers are to recognize that to form an alliance with this world is to do something of dire consequences. It's to cross a line in the sand that effectively makes yourself an enemy of God. Believers must keep themselves unstained from this world as they exercise humility and they loathe the pride of life. So from top to bottom, from A to Z, the authentic Christian life is this complete reprogramming of all that feels natural in our sinful, depraved minds. True religion not only speaks a new language as the tongue submits to the will of a gospel-transformed heart, but true religion has a whole new orientation to how we think of the currency of this world. It is this topic of the rich and how they wrongfully use their wealth that James will condemn. Let's begin by reading together the first six verses of James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. God's pronouncement of judgment on the unrighteous should both admonish and encourage the people of God concerning the elusive nature of wealth. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a text of Scripture that's probably a little less familiar to most of us this morning. The imagery is not as conducive to plugging right into our cultural mindset. So, Lord, there's some unpacking and explaining that admittedly needs to happen for us to really grasp what's going on in this passage, Lord. But your spirit is so good at illumining our hearts to see truth. My prayer for every one of us gathered this morning is that they would be able to look into their own copies of your word and to be able to be struck with the immense treasure that we have, not this world's earthly goods, Lord, but in you. You are all our hearts truly need. We pray that the Father would be glorified as we look at this text. We pray that the Son might be uplifted and treasured in our hearts. We pray, Spirit, that you would do that work that our own intuition cannot accomplish. Point out the areas in our hearts where we want to believe we're not guilty of this text. And help us see the joy of relinquishing our grip on the things of earth that we know ought to grow strangely dim as we look more and more at your glory. Be glorified in all that we consider in the next few moments together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. James begins in chapter 5 here by stating, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So James begins this section with a condemnation of the rich. He uses the same language, though, used in the previous paragraph. Look with me to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, verse 13 in particular. We see that same phrase, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So both of these successive paragraphs seem to begin with the same language. And since they both describe a person who is pursuing wealth, it's thought, naturally, we might be led to think this is talking about the same person. However, if you notice, the paragraph there, 13 through 17, is tightly connected with James' previous call for humble repentance. No such call is made in this second paragraph here at the beginning of chapter 5. Their judgment, the judgment of the rich, is already coming down the pike. It's already on its way. Furthermore, listen to how James speaks about the rich, this category of person that we're looking at for six verses, how he looks at it in other places in the book of James. Turn with me to chapter 1 for a moment. And let's look at 1, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 
How does he describe the rich person? We read, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And what's his fate? Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. This is a common expression of even the wicked in the Old Testament. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now turn to chapter 2. And let's look at verses 5 and 6. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? As we'll see what the rich are doing in chapter 5, this is awfully similar. So it would appear that the rich, at least as James is describing them here, are those who are set in contrast to true, genuine believers who are generally described, as chapter 2 says, as God's chosen, the poor of this world, but rich in faith and heirs of God's kingdom. So you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would James spend time condemning a group of people that aren't going to be in the room to ever hear him read this letter or whoever read his letter to, to Christians? Why would that doesn't even make sense? Well, this would have been a regular formula or a regular thing that was done for Jewish readers who were accustomed to hearing the words of the prophets of old and even the words out of the mouth of our Savior as pronouncements of woe to you, this nation or this city for this particular vice or sin. These words of judgment uh, would have been familiar this, this technique, if you will, had kind of a twofold function. First, to encourage the faithful that God will right all wrongs. Don't worry. You may not see it right now, but God's taken stock of what's happening. So to encourage the faithful that God knows what he's doing. But secondly, to warn Christians of the dire consequences of following in the footsteps of the wicked. Let's not say that we are above just because we give lip service to grace and, and to the Christian faith, that we are somehow exempt from the missteps and the failures and the sinful patterns of the wicked. Having a ready example of the destruction that it brings is healthy for us as believers. In fact, the entire tenor or atmosphere surrounding the text this morning echoes with this prophet-like language. So returning to verse 1, turn back to chapter 5, verse 1. The rich are told to do what? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. To weep and howl is a common expression used by the prophets to describe the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord finally arrives. For just one chapter earlier, James writes in, in 4, 9 through 10, be wretched and mourn and weep. The same word. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So here, though, we find a kind of weeping that is very, very, very different than the weeping we will see in chapter 5. 
that the weeping of the humble echoes the sort of weeping that Jesus says, blessed are these kinds of people. Blessed are those who cry a lot because God comforts those kind of people when they recognize their sin. This is not the condition of the rich in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, could not provide a greater contrast. There's no invitation to repentance in verse 1, for judgment is already coming down the pike. The weeping and howling is appropriate because of the miseries, plural. They're coming in abundance. They are on their way. So the way the text speaks, it's as if judgment is already happening. It's as if you've gotten the email that your package has been shipped. It's on its way. You can't stop. It may not have arrived in your driveway yet, but it's coming. That's the way this is speaking here. There's also a, a, a courtroom imagery that, that is brought to our minds as we read this text. It's as if God Almighty, through the mouth of James, has pronounced judgment upon the rich, and what follows is an ever-worsening list of grievances. Let's read on. Verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I'd encourage all of our young parents to read this to their children every night before bed. I just feel like this text will comfort them. These images will just soothe them. I'm sure they'll sleep well. No, hardly. But this imagery is vivid. And it's somewhat grotesque for a reason. The rich man places all his hope, his value, his faith, his glory into money and what it can buy. And the irony is that this rich, powerful, wealthy, influential person has made a God out of objects that a little moth can eat. It makes no sense. You think you've stockpiled. And, and worked and worked and worked, and as, as James will later say, and even cheated to get what you want. And the smallest little bug can take it from you. This is, this is stupidity 101. From God's perspective, this is utter foolishness. But this is the delusion of riches. In doing this, the rich have directly disregarded Jesus' words in Matthew 6. When he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, sound familiar, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he gives us an extremely important truth for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. So by showing us what controls the rich man, his wealth and his treasure, we find where his heart truly is. His heart is nowhere near God's heart. And this is the tragedy of the rich. Their money is not ultimately their problem. Money is never ultimately the greatest problem. For as J.C. Ryle, a famous Anglican pastor, would say, not everyone with great wealth is greedy. But not everyone who is greedy has great wealth. Rather, the wicked have turned their hearts to worship earthly objects that cannot deliver them from judgment. 
That's the key. Their, their eggs are all in the basket. That is just so foolish. Verse 3 ends by adding another layer of the foolishness of the rich. He has not been laying up. He's not only been laying up the wrong kind of treasure. But when is he laying up? He's doing it in the last days. So the end is near and he's worried about the stuff that moths can eat. This is ridiculous. It's, it's as if the, the child whose ball rolls into the street and all the one-track mind, I must retrieve my toy. I must retrieve my ball. It's in the road. I've got to get it. And he doesn't even see oncoming traffic, semi-truck, one after another. He's not aware. Don't do this. Or it's as if a grown man is trying to save his favorite shirt and tie combo as his house is burning down. And he's just moments away of dying of smoke inhalation. But all he can think about is, oh, you know what? I might not have this tomorrow. I love that shirt and tie. That's so good. I wear it all the time. That's great. I'll go get it. This is foolishness. This is the last days your house will not see tomorrow. Do not do this. In essence, James is saying, you rich fools, the end is near. And all that fills your hearts and your minds is trying to hoard more and more and more wealth. Wealth that's going to have the same kind of destruction as you. The text states that the corrosion of these temporal earthly objects will be evidence will be evidence against the rich resulting in their destruction. What, is, what does that mean? Well, once more, kind of a courtroom scene comes to our mind. To put it in our modern framework, it's uh, as if the prosecution submits the forensic science reports to the jury as evidence. The jury reviews them. The evidence is clear. His, his wealth corrodes. The this elicits a guilty verdict out of the court. And it's clear. The death penalty is coming down the pike. It's, it's right there. We see here, as we've seen time and time again throughout James, a great reversal. A great reversal of how the politics of this world are just upended by the world to come. He who dies with the most toys wins. That is a perfect tagline for this guy. That's exactly his mentality. Perfect expression for the self-deception of the rich. Every last toy, though, that a person in this life could ever possess is meaningless in eternity. You might hear echoes in this text of Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus, found in Luke 16. In this story, the rich man is clothed in purple, fine linen. He lives in luxury. The text says he feasted sumptuously. That just sounds delicious. Every day he did this. Lazarus, on the contrary, a poor, diseased beggar who sat among dogs at the rich man's gate. He lived off scraps of food that would fall from the rich man's table. Both of these men died the grand equalizer of all mankind. And they went in different directions. The rich man is carried to Hades for torment. But the beggar is carried by angels to Abraham's side. 
the rich man now finds himself as the one begging. Begging for relief from his excruciating pain. And even though the rich man calls out for mercy, God's response is this. Child, remember. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. While Lazarus received only bad things. But now he is comforted. And you are in agony. The delusion of riches came to an abrupt end for the rich man in this story. James has such a similar reality in mind. Weep and howl, all you who worship the almighty dollar and have drugged yourself to sleep in luxurious self-indulgence. As James will say later in chapter 5, the judge is standing at the door. He's right there. It's just a matter of time before you have to answer to him. The very one who can destroy both soul and body. We, we really can't soft pedal this text. You just can't. You can't read it in a tame sort of way. Or else we rob it of its bite that it ought to have. But then again, why would we want to do that? For this comforts us. As we continue reading in verses 4 through 6, we now see the downward spiral. So if things aren't bad enough, they're getting worse, trust me. This downward spiral of the rich. First, we see the foolishness of hoarding earthbound treasure in the last days, but now we see it doesn't stop there. It gets worse. The rich now use their wealth to oppress the poor. So we see in verses 4 through 6 the destructive power of wealth. We read, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived in, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So we learn in verses 4 through 6 that the rich in verses 1 through 3 have a certain profession. They're wealthy landowners who are exploiting and even murdering the righteous. So it may be helpful for us to know a few things by way of historical background of probably what James has in mind when he's writing this. Well, in our day and age, uh, the cultural elites who are the multimillionaires and even billionaires of our day... Few of them, I would venture to say, are farmers who just produce the most off their land or own the most land for the purpose of farming. And, and that's the main way in which they kind of rule and influence our entire nation. Things are just very, very different today. But in the ancient world that James is accustomed to, this would have been the case. Even the parables of Jesus recorded in Matthew and Luke demonstrate that wealth was tied closely to the production of things like olive oil and grain and ownership of land and precious metals and lending uh, money at an interest. One writer notes, a wealthy landowner was by definition an exploiter of the poor. Okay, so, so apparently you didn't just have a few bad apples out there or these... These wealthy landowners are generally decent guys, but, you know, you've got to watch out every now and then. No, it, the whole thing is corrupt. It's built on the structure of oppressing the poor, looking at them as just living, breathing property. 
That's the way that this life just was. There was no middle class to speak of. Peasants would bear the brunt of taxation, sometimes up to 40% of what they'd earn, and they're just property. These would have been the jobs that James' Christian brothers likely had. These are the people who are hearing these very words that we're reading. This was their situation in life, and this is the kind of person that verse 6 says is the righteous person. So what exactly are the rich being condemned for in verses 4 through 6? Well, verse 4 states that the hard-earned wages of the righteous, the poor, are being withheld by these miserly, greedy, wealthy landowners. Now, it's probably not that they're just kind of saying, guys, it's been a tight month, okay? I'm, I'm just, my cash flow is a little low, and I, I, I want to pay you, I just can't. No, we already know moths are eating their stockpiles of, of, I mean, they're just hoarding more and more and more. It is simply their greed just on display. I'm looking at these people, probably the foreman who, who would come out and manage all, all the workers for these wealthy landowners would just kind of say, got an announcement from the big guy. Uh, you're not getting paid today. <laughs> have a good one. See you tomorrow. And that would have been it. There's no, nothing you can do about it. The text seems to personify the wages, giving them a voice, so to speak. They, the riches, cry out, the wages that is, cry out against the rich. This reminds us of God's words to Cain in Genesis 4.10, where we read, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Do you remember that story? It's not as if what the wealthy are doing, though, to the poor, has no biblical prohibition. No, the Old Testament is clear. Leviticus 19.13 states, Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back wages from a hired man overnight. Or, with even more clarity, Deuteronomy 24.14-15, You shall not oppress the hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or he is a sojourner in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. This is exactly what's going on in James 5. The wealthy are oppressing the hired hands who are poor and needy, and they're crying out to the Lord. And just as he promised, the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Himself has heard these cries. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You just sang this, this name of God just a few moments ago when we sang the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It means, at least in most of its occurrences throughout Scripture, the God who commands an army of heavenly hosts who do His bidding at the drop of a hat. Amazing, unparalleled power. Think on that for a moment. Let that settle in. What a tremendous thought. A lowly, bottom feeder nobody who's out in the field just hoping 
that he gets enough money to buy tomorrow's bread to stay alive. When he hears the foreman say those words, no money today, ha ha, pack your bags, go home. He lifts up his heart to God and says, oh Lord, what am I to do? How am I supposed to live? Will you defend me against this injustice and oppression? And it's as if there's a call that's made directly to the office of the commander of chief of infinite armies. And he says, what was that? He did what? That's power. The wealthiest, most influential people in the world don't have that kind of power. And here it's given to this lowly nobody who works in a field. Let that sit on you for a moment. Brothers and sisters, do you remember James chapter 1? How did you initially feel when we heard it preached that we were to consider it pure joy when you fall into all kinds of various trials? Did you kind of gulp a little bit and think, doesn't sound normal? Consider it pure joy when I fall into trials? Well, how about now? You've got a lifeline like none other. Can't you look at any trial and say, the God of heavenly armies is right there. And he is aware of the smallest trial that I may be in. Unbelievable. He is personally aware of every one of your trials. He will fight for you as he has always fought for his people. As far back as when he fought on their behalf while his people were pinned up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go. Verse 5 continues with the condemnation of the rich. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. It's significant that we underscore the phrase, on the earth, for that is the only place that the rich will know luxury and self-indulgence. The verse continues, You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, The imagery here is one of a fattened cow that has just gorged itself with no knowledge at all that he's just moments away from being slaughtered. These images are real, are grotesque, but we would be foolish not to heed and to take wisdom from them. So once again, the problem is not that the rich simply possess wealth but that they use their wealth to cheat others and to finance their own lavish self-indulgence. So finally we read in verse 6, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Apparently, it's come to this. These wealthy landowners have sold their souls to wealth to such a degree that condemning and even murdering lowly field workers is not beyond them. They're just property. It's clear these workers are not organizing a coup or an insurrection to try to steal back from their employer. They're not even resisting, probably because they don't even have the means to resist. Where do they start? They're nobodies. 
So whether the poor are actually physically killed here or they're effectively killed by having their daily wages withheld and not having money to buy their daily sustenance, the point's the same. The downward spiral of the rich has only gotten worse. And now sin begets sin. And a greedy, self-indulgent heart gives birth to anger, rage, and finally, yes, even the murder of an innocent person. Our ability as the redeemed people of God to live the kind of life that James is talking about, a life that's morally skillful, wise, one that resounds of humble, true religion. Our ability to do this is rooted solely in how this book climaxes in chapter 4, but he gives more grace. In light of chapter 5's emphasis, we're reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8-9. For your sake, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The great reversal is at play again. Just think, the God of heavenly armies, the possessor of incomprehensible wealth, took on the form of a servant, probably similar to a field worker, becoming poor, sympathizing with our weaknesses, feeling the condemnation of the wicked upon his back, and eventually being murdered as the ultimate righteous person. And like the lowly field worker who did not even resist our Savior when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting His soul Himself to Him who judges justly. First Peter assures us of this. By His poverty, we became rich. Now He calls us to walk in His footsteps. The tragedy of the rich was indeed that they worshipped temporal wealth. A temporal wealth that could not deliver them in the day of judgment. Friends, worship the Savior. He's the only one who can deliver you from judgment. If you repent of your sins, turn from your foolish idols... Maybe it's not wealth that has a grip on your heart. Maybe it's some other idol. But it sure isn't the perfect substitutionary work of the Messiah. Turn to Him. Only He can hold you fast and make you stand on that last day. Repent and trust in Him. But how does this lesser known passage of Scripture filter down into our lives? Well, for starters, we can be encouraged, deeply encouraged that God will defend us. He will defend his children. Now, it may not be the way that we want or on the timetable that we're looking for, but his promises are true. They always have been. The psalmist wrestles with this same predicament in Psalm 82. 
You can almost imagine these words coming from the mouth of this field worker in James 5. The psalmist writes, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And in another psalm, the Lord answers this. In Psalm 37, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. But He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. So not only does God come to the defense of His children, but in the end, He promises to utterly destroy the wicked. When Christ returns for His church, the images used in Revelation are sweeping and graphic. His wrath will empty out on all those who have set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, as Psalm 2 states. This should bring us great hope when we hear report after report in our culture today of the wickedness that seems to be prevailing all around us. God will take care of that. Secondly, I think this text is also intended to admonish and warn God's people about the powerful nature of wealth. In Matthew 19, Jesus famously compares the ease with which a camel might pass through the eye of a needle to the ease that a rich man might enter into the kingdom of God. What's the obvious conclusion? That's going to be crazy hard. Really, really difficult. But why is that? Isn't it true that physical possessions and wealth was often associated with God's blessing throughout the Old Testament? Well, yes. Doesn't the book of Proverbs provide instruction about the wise stewardship of wealth and how to work diligently to that end? Well, yes. The answer is not in demonizing money. Or to misquote the Bible and by saying money is the root of all kinds of evil. The answer is that physical possessions and wealth give us tools that can finance a life that distracts us from the most important realities of life. When viewed this way, even pain is a gift if we let it arrest our attention and make us feel our need for God. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, our scripture reading from earlier this morning. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Again, it's not that those who are rich immediately fall. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What was it for the rich man? Well, it certainly led him to even murdering an innocent person. All kinds of evils can splinter off from the love of money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith even and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I, I don't need to blitz you with statistics this morning. We know how rich we are, don't we? Where we live we're probably in the top 1%. And, and almost irregardless of stage in life and 
amount of money in our bank account, all that aside. We are. Right? We don't have to talk about that. But let me ask you, what's your disposition towards all that you own or all that you hope to own? Or do you have a healthy respect, a healthy fear of the intoxicating power of wealth? Perhaps the fate of the rich hoarder in James 5 Uh, whose heart was infatuated with luxury and self-indulgence. Sounds like a a horrible person compared to you, compared to me. That might be true. Maybe they're very different from us. But remember, it's the self-deluding, the self-deception of wealth that works on its victims the most. I mean, what level-headed, logical person would pick 70, 80 years of modest, earthbound wealth over an eternity of infinite pleasure, treasure, joy. That's purely logical to say, I'll take eternity over 780 years. That only makes sense, right? Then why does the history of humanity always side with this side? (laughs) Because there is such deception. We give in to that glitter-coated appeal of it all. Time and time again, we're lulled to sleep. Children, does your heart dream about what toy, gadget, video game that you think you absolutely have to have? Teens, does your heart long for a particular style of expensive clothing? You feel if you aren't found donning that certain piece of clothing, oh man, I can't even leave the house. You have to have the most up-to-date smartphone. Just a few more hundred dollars or a few more thousand dollars and I'll finally be able to afford that car that you you are confident will make you look awesome. Young adults or college and career, perhaps you're still settling into that new reality of, of that level of an income. It's still sort of, you're still looking at those numbers on your, your check or your your paycheck thinking, wow, what am I going to do with this? I didn't used to always have this when I lived under mom and dad's roof. What, what do I do now? Or perhaps you're, you're hitting the peak of your career. Will you model what cheerful, joyful, sacrificial giving looks like? I promise you, it's a pathway to joy. Moms and dads, do your hearts tend toward playing the comparison game? always looking to see who's at your stage in life and to just try to convince yourself that you're just a little notch higher, just a little ahead. Your children see you using your wealth in sacrificial, generous ways. Or do you always complain about not having enough money to do this or that and almost feeling gypped that God hasn't given you that? Empty nesters, grandparents, Does your heart tend towards a daily worrying over money? Has the comparison bug also bit you such that you always talk about life after work when you can check out, kick back, and finally enjoy the playground of retirement that you always dreamed of? Not that these things are evil by any means, but has luxury and self-indulgence gripped your heart? That's the question. 
a Christian author by the name of Randy Alcorn, has written a beautifully simple little book called The Treasure Principle. And in this book, he reminds believers of the importance of keeping an eternal perspective on our possessions. He retells the classic story of Charles Dickens, a Christmas story, Christmas Carol, in the following way. He says it this way. When the story begins, Ebenezer Scrooge is wealthy and miserable. He's caustic, complaining, and horrendously greedy. After encounters with three spirits on Christmas Day, he's given a second chance at life. Here Dickens described the transformed Scrooge. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. After his transformation, Scrooge walks the streets of London, freely distributing his wealth to the needy. He's giddy with delight. He who only yesterday had scoffed at the idea of charity now takes his greatest pleasure in giving. So Alcorn concludes by asking the question, so what was the source of Scrooge's transformation? Well, by means of supernatural intervention, Scrooge was allowed to see his past, his present, and his still changeable future through the eyes of eternity. It was gaining an eternal perspective that changed everything for him. As James could put it, remembering that we are living in the last days, this kind of eternal perspective, the foolishness of trusting and hoarding earthbound treasure is set on display and called out for what it truly is. Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The fields, the fields, sound familiar, of hope in which we sow are harvested in heaven. So if we would demonstrate true and genuine religion, we must certainly ask for grace that would transform how we think about our wallets and about our bank accounts. Will we hoard our wealth or will we spend and spend it in self-indulgent luxury that disregards the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or will we seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that our greatest need, our only need, has been met in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're a rich people. We have so much. And we know ultimately that's not our problem. The problem is that we just tend to love it. And as we love that, we don't love you. So God, help us in these moments of quietness of our hearts to just repent to ask how you might fundamentally upend and reorient the way we think about the currency of true religion. Father, this topic could be spoken of in an endless amount of application.
just as money can lead to roots of all kinds of evil, there's all kinds of fruitful application for your people. I pray your spirit would even touch down in certain ways that were not even mentioned this morning. That you would make us a generous, cheerfully giving sort of people that are not stingy and greedy and have an earthbound approach to all that we have, but that we would sacrificially steward, manage, and give the possessions and the wealth, modest though they might be, compared to others, to your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.